when I go on one of these drives that I know, really any drive that I know is going to be at least eight hours, I think a, probably about 45 minutes into it, um, I have a good cry for fun reason. <laughs> Once I'm really alone and really in motion, then the themes that are in my life all the time are brought to brought to the to the forefront. So I'm automatically thinking about time. I'm thinking about faith. I'm thinking about shame and origin stories and memories. Whether or not I'm uh, you know, deliberately thinking about it, I think it just arises from this this act of being alone, really. Welcome to the Odin Psyche Podcast. I'm Bianca Stone, and I'm talking today with the poet, teacher, and editor, Sophie Clark. Clark's poems have appeared widely in such magazines as The New Yorker, American Poetry Review, Plowshares, London Poetry, and elsewhere. She is the author of the poetry collection, Meet Her Here at Dawn, and most recently, Two Open Doors and a Field from the Backwaters Press in 2023. She also has collaborated with the writer Corey Zeller on the book There is Only One Ghost in the World, winner of the 2022 Roland Suknik Innovative Fiction Award, and that book is coming out in October of 2023 from Fiction Collective 2. Clara teaches classes online and offers editorial services via her website, where she has a range of services around critiques and poetry, short fiction, and hybrid works. She's a faculty member at UNC Chapel Hill. She was originally a dancer, and her interdisciplinary work includes creating scenic texts for dance theater and choreography for performance artworks. Of her newest collection of poetry, which we'll be talking about today, Two Open Doors in a Field, Sile Gore on Poetry Foundation's Harriet Books says, the only interiors in these poems are motel rooms and the inside of a car nicknamed Crystal. A wind is everywhere. The poet's attention to detail makes the forgettable sacred. Quote, boots already wet from dew. Each word is unshowy, but carefully chosen to carry intense, restrained feeling. Clar lets the reader feel the energy of co-creating these poems. In the front seat, the steering wheel is near enough to feel as if you're part of the driver's decisions, though you haven't moved a muscle. Poet Eileen Miles writes, This is extraordinary poetry, noir like that early Joan Didion we loved. The poet R.A. Villanueva says of two open doors in a field, When I confess that I often had to pause and catch my breath while reading this book, I need you to know that such lightheadedness was born of utter amazement and admiration. Sophie Clark's poems are perpetual motion machines, stunning in all the ways they blaze among landscapes of adoration and epiphany and ache. Sophie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I was hoping that you would start by reading the opening sonnets in your newest book. Yeah, sounds good. 
driving through Nebraska, listening to the radio. Dawn on 101.5, the fever. Sometimes you're gonna have to lose, it sings. Mice behind the lath, swallows in the eaves. A rush of bergamot, wild sage drying on the sill. Boots already wet from dew. The branches of a huge burn pile lift like still submerged coral. That old dream again, the dream again of the house that isn't. Why don't you admit, you said, that all roads lead to Nebraska? In the time we spent together somewhere, a few languages died. When you said, it will always be uneven between us, I heard a new word for a field impossible to measure. Parked, Nebraska. You explained something to me about fire, which I knew I would quickly forget. Love is so short, forgetting is so long. This had been something I needed, what you said about the fire. For weeks, we touched only in the dark, pulsed like sea anemones. Every morning, you designed a new way to leave. Soon, we lost an hour of daylight. A turn signal of mine had broken, left side, back. I wanted to believe I could fix it myself. Winter had rolled onto the acreage like someone turning in bed, their palm smoothing to fit a lover's rib. When it snows, a car can disappear. Beautiful. Thank you so much for reading this. So this book has a very specific project around how it came to be. And I was thinking you could, if you, if you would talk a bit about what that project was and is and how it came to be. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> well, um, it came from driving by myself for probably hundreds of hours mm -hmm. um, between uh, Nebraska and California. And I think I didn't realize that I was starting to write sonnets um, for a long time, or even really realizing that I was writing poems, except that I have the compulsion as a person to collect language. Mm. And um, because I was driving so much and having these little glimpses of things, remembering little glimpses of things. Um, I was recording a lot of voice memos, which ended up with a lot of garbled, a lot of garbled speech, which I then decided, oh, maybe I'll transcribe some of this. And it seemed to fit best in sonnets. These, um, this contained space of a car seemed like, okay, well, here's this construction of deliberate, of, of limitation, but I've seen a lot. And so how do I best articulate what I've seen within um, 
within this limited space. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that environment that I, that I saw while also not really stopping to see what, what I saw. Like sort of like it's flying past you. You're seeing it, but not quite seeing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of what I was recording, um, I wasn't really recording my own thoughts. I was recording um, the radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was another, this other level um, of complication and the environment that I was seeing these glimpses being, being transformed essentially by what I was hearing on the radio. That's so interesting that, you know, when we remove something one degree, it's like, it makes it so much more strange or, or like isolating that little clip from, you know, you'll see on, on, on movies or something like when, a, a when a movie is playing in the background of a movie and like what comes through is feels so significant and different and like strange. And, um, I love that conversation that's happening, um, in your book with, with the overheard texts uh, and music of course. Yeah. So this, go on, do you want to say anything? Um, sure. I mean, yeah. it's like all of those poems rose from the occasion of being outside the norm. Um, I wasn't necessarily like, I don't think I would have, wasn't writing sonnets, um, you know, going from like the grocery store, <laughs> from the grocery store back to my house. It was, it was this, um, this mass of hours. And I guess the poems arising from the occasion of existing outside, you know, outside that, that norm. Um, and kind of the unknown destination a little bit as well. Absolutely. Um, that's, well, that's exactly what it feels like reading your book. Uh, it's like you're, you're moving towards something, but it's not, it feels like a very unknown destination, but an and unfamiliar landscape, but also very familiar. So it's a book of lyrical narrative um and it is in literal movement right so it it seems that in the perpetual traveling there like i was saying there is somehow no destination um but a focus on the need to keep moving you write in the poem motel arizona beyond two nights in any motel seems to threaten moving on and this moving seems to want to discover something and at the same time, ironically, avoid something. And it reminds me of the act or the event of a poem itself. We move through it, needing to keep going, and the writing can avoid looking, avoid listening to the self and to the world around it. And yet it always must, I feel like, to be a successful poem, inadvertently look and listen as if stumbling upon a kind of stopping and a seeing, a linearity disguised as random, a stillness disguised as movement. And of course, this this reminds me so much of the unconscious and the conscious that are that is at work in the poem, right? So, um, which is the work of being alive um so it's as if in these poems it's just that it's not about the traveling as much as the stillness you were saying this container 
in the car, listening within the car itself, and you even give that interior a name and intimacy, a familiarity. So talk a little bit more for me to me about the car itself, the vehicle, and and have have you always been drawn to the vehicle as a container? And <laughs> I don't even know if we have a choice there, but uh, I know I feel poems coming in the car, right? So like I there there's something special about this phenomenon of the car I feel like for inspiration yeah for sure I think when I'm when I go on one of these drives that I know it's going to be um really any drive that I know is going to be at least eight hours uh-huh. I think a, probably about 45 minutes into it um I have a good cry for one reason totally me too <laughs> For one reason or another. I mean, you have the music going to you usually. It's like. (laughs) Yeah. Let me just shed something that's that's happening here. And um, I think there's like, I I don't know. I always fall. I think that once I'm really alone and really in motion, then the themes that are in my life all the time are brought to the front. So brought to the to the forefront. So I'm automatically thinking about time. I'm thinking about faith. I'm thinking about shame and origin stories and memories. Whether or not I'm, uh, you know, deliberately thinking about it, I think it just arises from this this act of being alone, really. Um, and like. I think listening to the radio while driving, especially driving someplace that I don't know, um, you know, I, I'm listening, but I'm also in this sharpened state of watchfulness um, with, you know, ideas passed through in the same way that, you know, road signs, my information is being processed and considered with a certain decisiveness. Uh, it has to be. Yeah, it has to be. Stay safe. Yeah, you can't like get lost in a reverie when you're driving necessarily, <laughs> or you, you know you've got to be or at least one eye on 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 the, the fact that you're in a car driving 60, 70, maybe eighty miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think there's only one um, one poem that uh, includes my missing an exit and. Oh. It really almost never happens when I'm driving. But um, I think maybe that poem has to do, if I'm remembering my own poem correctly, it's like a real moment of grief. Yeah. (laughs) That maybe is a little more distracting than than other things that might come forward. You mean the grief came from missing the exit or the grief caused you to miss the exit? (laughs) I think the grief caused me to miss the exit. Maybe a little more distraction than usual. Ah, a Freudian slip, perhaps, to miss the <laughs> exit that you could you weren't ready to take. <laughs> exactly. Need a little more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me marinate in this thought a little bit more and like miss my my timing essentially, which is yeah, miss your timing, but yeah, swallows up time. Right. So the the inspiration in the car, the writing in the car, and my husband Ben Pease is taking this to a whole new level actually lately. And I almost wish he was with us to talk about it too, because he's been recording on the voice memo, like while he drives and then transcribing it. They're so different than your poems. It's really interesting, (laughs) but they're similar in their observations of things. Um, 
and I see the music he's listening to come in. Um, but the the level of allusions to other conversations and songs and the radio is very important to this book and i was you know i love thinking about allusions in in and in writing itself and intertextuality and i was i always think of this harold bloom quote where he says that since um great poetry is very nearly as elusive as it is figurative the question of accuracy and tracing elusiveness is crucial i love I love the move for poets Ashbury comes to mind and Bernadette Mayer, um, where the act of alluding to things is such an intimate yet chance occurrence in the poems. Um, there's an, of course, this heightened uh, overheardness in your poems, literally. Mm-hmm. And you attempt to track back all these all these references in the index of your book. <laughs> and I loved that because it's such a, it's so, it's always fun to see what people were listening to and reading and thinking about while they created their poems. Um, and I noticed that on being with Chris Tippett kind of <laughs> is, is a lot. There's a lot of that. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess just tell me about, your love of listening to things and this overheard conversation. Um, I mean, are you an avid listener to like podcasts or conversations and music while you're writing normally or in the car, this was a specific thing that was happening. I think, you know, in the car, it's a specific thing that was happening. And particularly um, there was only sort of one leg of the journey that's recorded the journeys that are recorded in this book where I was actually with um, somebody else, but most of it is uh, alone. Yeah. And so, you know, there's listening to music is, is one, is one thing, but in terms of, you know, wanting to be accompanied and sort of uh, think with other people, um, overhearing yeah. these the, the conversations, I, I guess, is a way of, of how it felt um, with Krista Tippett's podcast. It really did feel like participating in these conversations in in some way, and I, 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 I tried my very best to, um, you know, to attribute the ideas that I put into my poems um, from the interviews that I that were, you know, I had lifted them from. Um, and they're mostly about about faith, which is something I think about constantly. And mm-hmm. um, you know, and a lot of it, interestingly. So you know, Krista Tippa's podcast is very much around spirituality. Right. Um, and the other thing that I listened to most randomly would be this religious radio, religious radio station. Oh, right. That's always on the radio. It's religious radio. It's yeah. such a it's such a big thing that still goes on on the radio. It's so huge. It's huge. And I love listening to um, religious radio stations because the variety is wild. Um, And sometimes you can tell it's just one person. They've been in the studio for a long time by themselves and they're railing on about the most horrifying, the most horrifying homophobic, xenophobic things. Right. And then on the other hand, there can be 
you know, two people in the studio with kind of a structured show and they're talking about their faith in a really generous, lovely way. So right. I always, and I always really looked for, um, looked for religious radio just to see, I'm fascinated by varieties of faith and uh, as a Jewish person, I would love if there was Jewish radio. I know it's all very Christian, isn't it? <laughs> it really yeah. is. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, which, you know, it's, 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 but it's still very, it, it's not like those are so, we're not so distant. Um, oh, I, God, no. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the ancient Christian mysticism was inseparable in a way you know from the jewish mysticism as well um or they were born one from born from the other um but was faith i i noticed that in that in multiple poems that faith did come up was that a big part of your upbringing yeah you know i grew up in um both my parents were jewish and they did not have in their childhoods um synagogues they neither of them i think maybe both of them had a bar mitzvah and a bat mitzvah but they didn't go to synagogue mm -hmm. and they wanted to raise my younger brother and i with going to a synagogue and um we went to a reconstructionist synagogue which is the most liberal i believe the most liberal judaism gets yeah so we did not have we had a, a cantor basically a singing guide of prayer but um it was very community run and it was full. Our congregation was full of professors and therapists and queer people and um, differently abled people. And it was just really community run. So mm -hmm. the, the questions that were, that came up in services were not like, how do we, you know, do you believe in God? That wasn't, you know, how are you best serving God as a, thing as sky daddy mm -hmm. it was always interpreted more as you know expansiveness and a focus on community mm -hmm. and as i got older i realized that my parents while we went to synagogue on a pretty regular basis we had shabbos dinner every friday they never spoke to me about god about faith mm. and if i would bring it up um they'd be like Hmm, look over there. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> it was not really a thing that we talked about, but I felt as a child intensely spiritual. It's, it's something that I have only really come into. I think I've been struggling with um, in my adult life. Like what is my relation to a higher power? How do, to higher power, higher mm -hmm. power, um, what is that relation and what is the re what relationship is that? What does it look like? What does um, prayer look like in my life? Um, how is my life different when I do engage with prayer or don't engage with prayer? And it is very, it is, I've found from various yeah. experiments, it is very different. Um, and it's, and I, what I have enjoyed the most about, um, having faith is that it is active i don't really get up in the morning and think okay time to pray to my immovable god <laughs> it's it's different every day if i'm gonna sort of exercise my faith i have to i have to exercise it i have to yeah. figure out every single day 
what's my relationship going to be to the powers of, of the universe? Yeah. Um, so it changes kind of on a daily basis, actually. I love that so much. <laughs> I, you know, going back to this idea of solitude, um, which I feel is so important in, in spiritual exploration and practice, um, but as, as much as community is. And so I was thinking about how this book has to, a, a real contrast in it, which I really loved. And that in the traveling poems, there's a sense of needing to be anonymous and witness to the world as someone passing through. Mm-hmm. And in this witnessing, there is a lot of difficulties seen in human nature and in landscape, ecological, agricultural, there's shame and disconnect that come up as much as curiosity, um, contented observation, and a subtle and palpable grief. And then in the center of the book, the shift focuses to a man, a lover, and working with the earth, this idea of land this idea of digging a hole keeps mm-hmm. coming up too. And the other workers that are surrounding the, the two that are sort of like in the focus. Um, but this contrast between the solitude of the driving and then the center section of the book in this stasis, um, not stasis, but this, this set place where they're living and working the land seemed really important to the whole arc of the book. Um, for poets, solitude is so important, right? And so tell me about the importance to you in solitude and community in just your day-to-day life and, and how, I don't know how that's it's this reflected in this book as well. Sure. Um, that's a really good question. I think that a lot of my friends are either very, very old friends. Um, I still have um, a best friend from kindergarten who I talk to on a daily basis, or not a daily basis, but a really regular basis. And so they're either very old, very, very old friends, or they're friends that I've made through um, being in recovery communities. So either they've known me for a long time, or they've known the same horrors that I've known. Um, and there's some, you know, there's some poets in there who some of them, you know, also are old friends or have that recovery community or, mm-hmm. you know, they're random. But um, I think that having having people who, you know, know me um, is difficult, actually. <laughs> I think being known and maybe and maybe that's seen a little bit just thinking about it right now. Um, Maybe that's reflected a little bit in this book, um, or a good bit in this book about being in being in motion. And this center section, um, you know, the the being in motion is so, you know, explicitly alone. And in the in the core section um, of the the sequence, like Nebraska, this uh, sort of general the the general he and she and the workers in this land are connected they know each other via 
the land via putting their hands into the into the same land and working together i think is so um working that land together is so central to the idea of of community having not necessarily having a common goal but having a, a common um commonality in touch yeah maybe um and and I think there's there's some sort of part of the crisis that, that happens in that sequence of poems is this question of what you know what will, what will these relationships become if we're not in the land uh, together and I guess it still kind of remains um, a big question actually I would love it if you read uh, a a bit from the like Nebraska section and I would especially love to hear the one that ends on the title poem, which is on page 51. Yeah, sure. Just that one or another? If you, another would be fine. I would like that too. Sure. Um, okay. I'll read the one um, just before, and then also the one that ends with the title. She sees like a memory aware of itself as memory. He is dressing in the half dark like some old movie, a man in a dream of farmland, his profile plucked from switchgrass, made visible by light casting its line inwards, his pale body smelling of flight like a familiar story, an entire landscape curving to pull on a pair of boots. They are like Nebraska at the end of September, still blooming marigolds heaped in the garden, a familiar quilt being unfolded, cold at sunrise, easy in the air, and water stains like veins below a windowsill, coffee cup beside the feather bed, a memory of cottonwood drifts, tall nodding flocks, brick dust again in his hair, rose hips wild in a ditch, a cricket singing, keep it, keep it, from behind the leaking washer. Dust lit by shafts of sun, streaming through cracks in the north barn's roof. Light resting on shoulders, worn out with the good work of a good day. The closest town to the farm, named simply for the first who decided to stay. This is how September ends. They stand together at dusk a little ways apart, like two open doors in a field. It's so interesting that in this poem and in the poem before it, that there's a sense of memory being the lens in which you see and see the beloved. Ah, Freud nods. <laughs> uh, I feel so involved with the idea of memory lately um how our whole understanding of what has happened historically um and what that means for the present moment um that or means how we act in the present moment and how between those two things what happened and what is there's a kind of fungibility or a mutability um, more so than we think. Uh, and that in a way, memory, of course, can overcome the present moment. And 
then it can also, of course, inform and enrich the present moment depending on our attention to certain aspects of it or a way of communicating with it. Um, I was interested in your book in thinking about memory and the immediate um, and in just in general, the idea of memory and the immediate in poetry. And I'm wondering if we can investigate this a little bit together. Uh, you know, like I was saying in the beginning of what I observed with Ben's poems and what I observed with your poems is that it demands the immediate because you are literally, you know, you're, you're Roka looking at the Panther. It's like, it's very much like about what you're seeing and, and, and the kind of like recording of that uh, or overhear. I like the idea of the overhearing of it. Um, so there's this deep commitment to observation, but the, but memory, like you were saying, you can't help it. It comes involuntarily. Certain memories come, and then it's very significant which ones do. So, any thoughts about like memory and poetry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I do feel <laughs> I had um, an, an ex once made fun of me for, which I'll never, I'll never forget the quotes <laughs> he talked about. Um, you know, the, what he called, he didn't understand, and I quote, the ridiculous allegiance to truth uh -huh. uh, in my poems. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, like, oh, well, how, hor how horrible. If how horrid. How, how horrid. If I you thought poetry it. was about truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, and, I, I see what he's getting, sort of implying. Yeah. yeah. And it's been, um, it's, it's, really troubling because yeah. on the one hand I do feel like on the one hand to, to you know to a student I would say well you know if the if the word green fits better in your poem and the thing you saw was blue you could make it green but for me as a writer I would try as hard as I possibly could to make the actuality of blue fit into whatever whatever the you know like does the poem serve um am i serving sound or am i serving truth which doesn't yeah. have to be split but you know i'm not i'm i'm not really a fiction writer yeah <laughs> so. i know it's so on i find it it's it's really ironic that or it's funny that you they use this example because in a poem not that long ago, I, I made my car blue and I was so proud of myself because I too have like, cause I had been reading a lot of James Tate and I was like, why can't I make shit up more? <laughs> I was really mad. I was like really tired of myself or something. And then I was like, I'm going to make my car blue in my poem. Yeah. Was like, <laughs> it was kind of exciting, but, but, but yeah, I, well, right. I mean, I, I get that feeling in your book, right? Like I believe what you're seeing. I don't I don't I don't think that I don't think that you've, you know, changed like made up a scene or something, you know? Like I don't even in fact and I'm sure there's a, actually a pretty fun debates out there from poets who do make up scenes, especially when 
you know, it's really emotional. Like, oh, like, you know, my brother died and like I was at his bedside, like crying. Everybody's crying about it. I, this is definitely from an essay I read. I forget the poet's name, but he was like, you know, some woman came up to him after and was like offering him comfort. And he was like, that didn't happen. And she was like enraged. And he was like, well, you don't know how poetry works. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, it's, but okay. But besides the facts of like, making things up mm -hmm. um in terms of what you witness just there's there's memory and memory is not the same as knowing what you're looking at mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah you don't always know what you're looking at with memory uh yeah your mind may very well be making it blue when it was green <laughs> yeah i think that as a, as a person, um, I have always been a collector. And so my poems typically really reflect that, whether I'm, you know, collecting experience, collecting quotes, collecting, uh, you know, collecting memory and trying, I think that's also part of the, part of why the sonnet form um, really worked for me, when I, I think when I wrote the first couple of sonnets that had that were these driving poems, um, and saw, oh, this this form really works for me because I know that I have an out. <laughs> and it only you mean the ending? Yes. yes, yes. I can, um, you know, I can stop writing about whatever experience I've been having because, like, oops, it's fourteen lines. I. I couldn't go any further yeah. if not, you know, and I know there's all sorts of different um, interpretations of the sonnet. Um, you know, mine happened to all be that traditional 14 lines. And it feels like having this really lovely exit strategy, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Um, they also, you know, they serve, some of these poems have a lot of trauma in them. And I felt very safe to explore that within the framework of a sonnet where if I were just writing, you know, with writing without a form, writing more than 10 syllables per line and writing more than 14 lines, um, it would feel, you know, unstable. And I like to be, I like to be stable yeah. these days in my life. <laughs> I like to have that little, you know, the sonnet is sort of like, um, sort of like going to therapy, like, okay, yeah. I'm paying for my hour. I'm going right. in the room. I'm going to freak out. I'm going to say yeah. whatever I want. And then the hour's up and I leave. Yeah. That's the sonnet. Yeah. yeah. I know it's, it's, it's so true. It's, it's all one stanza. It's all one room. Mm -hmm. It's got, it's got, a, you always know how long it's going to be. <laughs> it's generally consistent, like widths, although you have one that goes a little, you've got to have one that breaks out a little bit. One's very wide. It's a sideways one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the sideways, I think the sideways one, it's, it's the only sort of sideways one and it's, and I'm not really sure what that had to do with. I think in some ways that poem in part wanted to be uh, a prose poem. Mm -hmm. um, but my, but what I was talking about in, you know, the subject of the poem Still felt un unsafe, so I gave it a little bit of that um, the prose the prose poem box mm -hmm. while still in using uh, 
using slashes to still signify like, okay, I'm still in my safety zone, still mm -hmm. in my silent zone. I love that. Like there is something really magical in the sonic form. Like, I mean, it's just lasted the test of time more than any other form, for sure. Yeah, you know, and I think my my interest in in the form has to do with the turn, um, with the volta that that shift. I find it so um, such a powerful tool, and again, it's part of that it's part of that wonderful safety net if we're, you know, putting it in sort of therapy terms. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of like having the, I don't know, a voice of a therapist saying like redirecting thought or giving the possibility, um, the option of, of redirection, mm -hmm. saying here you can turn if you want. Mm -hmm. um, and engaging that has really meant a ton, a, really a ton of freedom within that space saying, okay, the leap can be here if I so choose, um, if I so choose to, to engage it. And I think that allowed, that allowed the sonnets to feel very roomy and for me to have space to connect, um, to, you know, connect maybe what was happening outside that window of, of the car to memory or to a different moment of window. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the, the Volta just feels like essentially an opportunity, a double safety net, if you will. Mm. Well, speaking of double, I kind of can't do a podcast without thinking about the dyad, but I I was looking at the penultimate lines and the final line of uh, the poem you just read, and they stand together at dusk a little ways apart like two open doors in a field and how I love how the they functions in this poem and the idea of two open doors. Um, it feels of course, like the couple are standing there, two people with so much on the other side of their own respective doors, mm -hmm. both in the future and potentiality uh, and then so much behind them, hidden behind a door in the past, yet to be distinctly open doors is very telling here. It's an invitation to walk through, to be entered to a new place. Mm -hmm. So there's so much vulnerability in this, in the open doors. And the act of the two open doors, not just the one with the they, um, it just hints at that mutual dyad that that feels like very positive in the book uh, as much as the the grief and the trauma narratives are are threaded throughout um i felt like so much power in this uh, in spirituality for sure because the they also seems to function in terms of these shafts of light that are coming through that is such a powerful image and the ending and coming to the ending uh, how the light illuminates what's in the air, um, otherworldly, mystical. To me, it spoke to a kind of sacredness between the two people. And and certainly, and it's interesting because two open doors, I sort of picture them facing each other. And I picture two people as two open doors and how in some way we can never, if you're two doors, you can never enter one another, really. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> but there's like I said, like all this openness and light and vulnerability there. Um the infinite nature of each person. That's what came to me. Mm-hmm. Um and and to to further this in this in this very particular poem is that this whole scene is cast on a farm mm-hmm. and this very tangible location of of man uh those beings that evolved from the nomadic who were paralleled i feel like in the in the person driving the car and then to be ended up here in this land uh the tangible the felt earth um and the settledness of that i i was like what's my question at the end of this book review i will tell you anything anything that you feel in what i've said but you know also i i felt is is gardening important to you is working with the earth been important to you um which you know, you think about it's so different than being in the car. It's like, <laughs> just like couldn't do two very different things. But I, I, I'm not much of a of a gardener, but I am a toucher of earth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like so the same. Um, a and I and I always have. Um, I always have been. And then of course, uh, there's, there's pieces in, in this book that are about um, complicity and of, of destruction of the earth and about having good intentions and um, sort of the lack of knowing, like, I don't know what's, I, I've, I've always sort of gotten myself into pickles with trying to save a, a struggling animal this you know probably happened like as you know day you know day one of my life um not necessarily but but you know um some of my earliest one of my earliest memories is trying to save a baby bird mm. and um it not working out yeah and you know, just today I was going for a walk and moved uh, a millipede from the middle of the path to. You know, oh my God, we're so similar. <laughs> I do the same thing. I like, I was like trying to go on a walk the other day and I just kept picking up worms and moving them around. I was like, I can't even enjoy a fucking walk. It just rained. But yeah. Go on. I mean, because I have, you know, I was on a bike path and I'm very aware that the millipedes often get smashed. And so I just. I just want to give it an opportunity to, yeah. to not get smashed. And this makes some people, uh, you know, it makes some people crazy, but in, <laughs> in the context of, of this farmland, um, I, where I spend a lot of time, sometimes I found myself being, being truly helpful, um, helping an animal or, or building, um, you know, moving dirt from one place into a, um, big, you know, another pile of dirt because the farm needed a dike because the rain, you know, the the erosion had done whatever and was flooding one piece of the farm. So the um, the I think the pleasure of engaging with the earth has always been central to me. And I've also interestingly found 
so much judgment. If other people are, are around me at a time when I'm engaging specifically with animals in one way or another, sometimes people are like, ugh, leave it alone. <laughs> you know? yeah. Leave leave the dying bird. Yeah. It's just whatever. nature. Yeah. Leave the snake. <laughs> whatever whatever it is. But um, which is, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me, the relationship between um, people and animals. And I, I'm writing a lot about that right, right now, actually. But uh, yeah, my in, in terms of like in terms of working outside, I think just being you know being present um, outside has been really important to me. This place that is um, so named or not not named, it's vaguely alluded to, but the farm um, is a, is a place where I lived for you know on and off. Um, probably for a year and a half of my life almost. And the room that I lived in the most um, was very porous, <laughs> kind of like camping inside. Yeah. Um, you know, one winter I was there a little bit late and the a glass of water next to my bed froze. And oh, man. So it was really just being, being part of the elements. It was so different than, you know, being, being on the road and so vital to me, um, that experience of uh, just so life-giving to be a part of what was happening in the land and simultaneously acknowledging uh, while, I'm a, while I'm a part of it, I can never fully be um, a part of it, I guess. It's, a, it's complicated, it's something that I, I struggle with um, regularly, actually. Well, I... I um... I loved and appreciated the, I, I saw the, the relationship to animals in the book very strongly. Um, and it was almost hard to read some of them, you know, I, the baby, the baby birds won them stuff, but I, I don't know. It's, it's, there's such a specific feeling that happens for some people when they witness the, the innocent there's something i hate to say the innocent but the when animals are hurt and and there's almost like because we can't communicate with them there's like a helplessness feeling between the two things and and it feels like you want to help and you can't and and there's that that awful feeling that happens that um sorrow about it um anxiety about it too it it does make you want to write about it it's like you need to work through it or something you or you need to like put it in a poem to i always feel a little cruel you know <laughs> like making somebody else suffer with me because like something and it's not just animals too it's just like awful things like you know like little injustices and pains that have that we witness and um and live through and I don't know what it is that poetry some place to put that. Um. Yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of, it has to do with being, um, being a witness when I am outside, when I, when I go pick up that millipede that's on the, the bike path, it's me acknowledging, like I am seeing and engaging with the fact of another life, mm. um, whether or not it has, it can think in the way, 
you know, the millipede is not thinking in the way that a, a person is thinking. I'm thinking in that moment, I want you to be safe. Um, and I'm going to do what I think I can to make this creature safe for, for a moment. Um, and it has to do, I think, with my the, the greatest success, the way that I measure success in my poetry is, I think, does it have the capacity for consolation? Um, you know, not necessarily healing, but even just temporary cons consolation, where that maybe that means uh, the person who's reading can just have a moment of relation mm -hmm. um, to, uh, you know, to what I've written. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be joined to something, it's not, I don't think it's in, in this book, but, or it's, it's referred to in this book about seeing um, a, a Robin who, you know, watching over months, like, okay, I know where this, this Robin's nest is. I saw the eggs, I saw them hatch and there's a storm and the nest and the, the little tiny chicks come down um i think the moment that's not really quite recorded in this in in that poem is that is you know seeing um not just seeing like oh the nest and the chicks have fallen and they're and they're dead and the nest is destroyed but uh seeing basically seeing the robin seeing that the chicks and nest were, mm -hmm. were on the yeah ground. that's what killed me yeah yeah, yeah. And well, I think as as yeah. like a woman too, like having the the empathy of like a mother, like having to like there's just nothing worse, right? I mean, it's like having to see your like dead children. It's just it just doesn't get more horrific than that. Even no matter what, you know. Oh, they're not, you know, what they they don't think, therefore they are not, you know. Like uh, they don't have feelings. Like it's just ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's interesting to be to understand. Like, um, is there? I was watching recently uh, videos late at night of like giraffes giving birth. Oh wow! <laughs> it's very. I bet that's a sight. It's really intense. They fall six feet. Holy crap! And then they, you know, they gotta get up yeah. pretty fast. And it's interesting, like. I think when I see a video or an actuality of an animal giving birth or eggs hatching, um, do I think like, oh, these, the, the mother bird is experiencing joy, relief, etc. No, I don't necessarily think that. If I, on the other hand, as a person, if I see an animal experiencing the death of, um, of an offspring, immediately, I ascribe mm. grief to their experience. Interesting. And maybe it's just me, but it's one of the things that, that that's really interesting. <laughs> I think yeah, I mean, I, to the animals. Yeah. I think, well, I don't know, I feel bad for cows who don't get to mm. nurse their calves. And I know. I know they want, I know that they want to, right? So it's like, I feel this like, but it's true that we're more apt to, well, I, I would say I'm more apt to resist like sentimentalizing and like, like placing my, I, I don't like to place, 
it's so hard, right? To like not place your human emotions onto animals. It's like, but at the same time, not be like, they don't have emotions just because we don't understand what it looks like. It's not the same as us. It's like they clearly have the capacity to experience like, you know, empathy and, and, but well, various animals have different things that we can gauge and see and witness with our scientific tools. And once we see them with our scientific tools, then we can say they're real. But in the meantime, I don't know. It, it is, it's just like a fine line. I don't know. Like as a poet, right. You're always trying to try to balance the line between like anthropomorphizing, sentimentalizing animals, like using them for our own, like, you know, projecting onto them. I like, I felt that the other day when I was, editing and I was like I'm so, I fucking hate the projecting onto animals that I keep doing and like I just don't want to do that um but at the same time like we're just we're just part of this world and the world's rough and like suffering is all around us and it's like one has like an enormous empathy for suffer the suffering of others I don't, you know animal and human and tree I mean I feel terrible when i like kill a tree by mistake or something you know with the lawnmower or something i don't know it's yeah when yeah. i'm chopping down trees and the, when i see a fucking slew of trees chopped down on my you know in my area of where i live and i used to see a grove of trees i fucking cry i'm like crying you know i don't know it's just like we're all part of this world it's it's yeah yeah i mean we we exist in relation to others and to experience I, I was living in a place where um, there were a lot of, uh, there were maybe five sisters and a, a tree that was apparently dead was being cut down. And the girls, I, I didn't know it was, I was, you know, in my apartment, whatever. And all of a sudden I was hearing screaming <gasps> and went outside. And the, the whole little knot of girls are probably between the ages of like, I don't know, four and 13 or something they were all sort of together screaming about this tree being chopped down and I was like oh my god all right well I'm gonna go write that down yeah how <laughs> can you not write about that I'm like you know yeah. we it's like it's it's us existing in relations to others and experience and that also means like we exist in relation to an arrangement of words and sounds and mm -hmm phases and uh lines and spiritual insight and i i think that was one of these that was one of those moments i mean i truly went inside and <laughs> just got my computer yeah it's like okay i've been a witness to this i don't know what it means or my feelings necessarily about it but i've had a response to their vocalization uh -huh. about it which there's no way for me to translate that except into poetry otherwise what i don't know what i would have done kind of stare at the wall or turn yeah. or something i was like no no this this belongs in the space of um what i understand what i understand poetry can hold and and contain this active um witnessing and relation consolation empathy uh that was the right space for it otherwise I don't know. I would have just, it would have been a story. I would have just recounted in horror, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. It's that, it's that uh, quality of attention that we pay things and what we put our attention into. And it's not even us to say why in, in all ways. It's, 
but there's something in experience and our attention that we give it that makes it something more that somebody may have something yeah well we know somebody else will get something to it's like we give it right it's almost like you don't know exactly the answers why you just know that some you feel something something you feel enough that in sharing it with another person you might be able to to with them mm-hmm. figure things out yeah yeah it's it reminds me of um this moment in a poem from octavio paz and he says that animals and things make languages mm-hmm. and through us the universe talks with itself I love that. I I love it so much. I think about it. I think about it all the time. I think there's some, you know, there's echoes of of that in in this in in my work. And like, I I think I I tend to repeat myself a lot in my in my poems. But mm-hmm. the things that I repeat and the things that maybe we all repeat in our writing or have repeated for I don't know since since poetry started being written like these these things bear repeating Um, description of a tree bears repeating right (laughs) there's always something different slightly different about it right Mm -hmm. yeah the phenomenon of repetition is so interesting to me um, because it can feel so maddening, a certain kind of repetition that never changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, psychologically, of course, but just it just crops up everywhere. Um, but that, yes, poetry, we can never get tired of talking, trying to describe the moon. Um, <laughs> Poets love the moon. <laughs> they do. They love the moon and trees and wind. There's a lot of wonderful wind and trees in your and your book. Um, yeah there's, there's something that I think is like I think a lot a lot of this book um has to do like has has moments with Whitman in it and partially I don't know if I mentioned I don't think I mentioned this in the notes but I had this great CD that's how old my car was I had a CD of um James Earl Jones reading selections from Song of Myself. That's great. It was really freaking fantastic. It is fantastic. I think you can get it on online still. It's a recording from the 92nd Street Y. Hearing um, James Earl Jones saying, urge and urge and urge. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) It's so, it's so good. And somehow, like, I think, um, the type of like the type of tenderness that Whitman offers in uh, you know in conversation with with the with the world and with other people and sort of Whitman is assertive and then the next you know phrase turns around and says but I might not be right but look here like I'm going to throw my arm around your shoulder and let's look together and see together that's what I hope for my poetry too yeah I, I think is this act of sitting together and looking together and um yeah i do try i mean i think in in the poems and in the final poem too it really sort of says pretty explicitly like come with me yeah 
please, please come with me. I want to share um, these things with you. And, you know, that's very sort of Whitman-esque. Like, I stop somewhere waiting for you. Like, come on, the car door is open. Come on in and we'll go look together. Mm-hmm. It's just like that quote I read at the beginning where it does feel like we're in the car with you. And I think women's so appropriate as well because you know, he sings America. Mm-hmm. It feels very American and looking at the whole the whole of the landscape, the very democratic gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love it, Sophie, uh, to end this com- this wonderful conversation. And I thank you so much for your beautiful poems and you're just fantastic insights (laughs) into poetry itself if you would read this last poem that is in your book because it's such a wonderful ending to the book it would be a good ending for this as well yeah sure um this little crown of sonnets partial crown um is called pass with care Pass with care, says the road, says, do not pass. Every photograph I take of ruins is with you in mind. Agony, orchard, gasoline, comfort. Seeking some being in these arced hours. No other car's mirage to punctuate fences beyond fences. Long syllables of wires for their absence. Any living creature beside cattle. I but use you for a minute, then I resign you, stallion. The CD skipping. What, what, what is less or more than a touch? A kind of marginalia to the land that I listen to over and over. Can I say how empty this country seems? Can I say how empty this country seems? Land raised, shocked fertility, needing time for its soul to catch up to its body, and I am complicit. There, horse heads of pump jacks nod bleak nods over the oil fields, beaks heavy in the strip miles. I struggle. This country emptied by us, and porous, and beloved, and how I've neglected the sky, and what I have tried to tell you. Let me tell you, By God, it was so blue. The wind moves like an animal inside the grass beyond my wheel. I don't know if I understand how to see myself home, but I've gathered all these pieces to me. But I've gathered all these pieces to me like bones that might have breath leaned back into each length. On my dashboard, eucalyptus, seashells, stones. I do want to have a home. It snowed in the town where I woke today, but I still haven't seen the rain in months, and the earth mutters on, holding itself, erosion the origin of sweet talk. I'd like to report I will put chaos into 14 lines. I'd like to report passing no winer's diner in Roswell, catty corner from the Caverns Motel. Can you hear me? I say into the phone. How often this question means giving up. 
How often this question means giving up. I ask a lover if they will write me once I arrive in. I won't, they say. That's just not the kind of person I am. A woman is even more a woman when she sleeps alone, and even more so in a bed not her own. I think often of being chopped into little pieces. I am weary with being a woman, so clearly a woman. Woman seeing America, white, Jewish, sober, queer, woman seeing America. Oh, I met my five-year-old trans cousin last week. He knew himself so well, it made me weep. He knew himself so well, it made me weep, or was it me that I was weeping for? In the shade of a rest stop, a trucker and I standing on the pavilion watch, as the fence land it seems we have each been staring into is split by a line of doves. After the fourth, it no longer seems like a dream. Dogs glimpsed beyond the barbed wire becoming fact. The trucker wears a hat bearing the name of who he believed would make America great again. Seeing the dogs, we turn to one another, strange awe making us light. At least this we shared. It's not something I would want to forget. It's not something I would want to forget. I lift a wounded snake from a dirt road. I have always loved believing I could save things until the spring I trapped raccoons, two kits, one hurt by being tangled in tarp strings I spent all afternoon cutting away from its body. Set the kits up in a live trap for their mother's entry. The point was to keep them a family. Three nights she came to take them from the cage. A fault in the latch kept shutting her out. She tried, piss, fur, flesh, ripped. She left a trail. It fills me with shame to say this, and still, it's a story I have to do justice. It's a story I have to do justice. There was a badger hole beside the house. I saw my hair woven into a nest. Behind the lath, a wind slammed the door hard, then opened it, quiet as a mother. Petals of an altar's yellow roses, like chiggers, that lit up beneath my skin whenever I ran. The memory was that of someone fleeing. I've not said I want to be alone. I'd like a passenger. Perhaps you have become my passenger by reading. My worn car's door flung open, and here... I will leave it open for you. Do not pass, says the road. Pass with care, the road says. Sophie Clark, thank you so much for reading that poem and for this incredible book, Two Open Doors in a Fields. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends on, on social media. You can find us at Odin Psyche on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can contact me at Bianca at Roostonehouse.org. 
It's never meant to be literal and each piece is shared.